Good morning. Today we are reading Matthew 5:21 through 26. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offended, your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Thank you so much, Mary. Let's pray. All right. Father, thank you for the reminder that your son gave us, that everyone who hears his words, these words, and does them, puts them into practice, will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And I pray that we would do just that, Lord, that we would hear them and put them into practice. So give us ears to hear. Uh, Give us glimpses into our own heart and show us the path that we need to follow. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine with me, imagine that somehow your life, your actions every day were recorded. So imagine them being put up on a screen and the camera was always in the right place. It always had the right angles to show exactly, exactly what you were doing all the time. But imagine with me a a split screen. So on one screen is that, all actions and all your activities. But imagine on the other screen, zeroed in is a a spiritual x-ray machine. And so it is constantly showing the results of actually not just your actions, but what also is going on in your heart. What are the real motivations there? What are the true desires there? What what do you really want? What are you really thinking? So imagine those are going on all the time. And when you think about that very long, that thought is pretty intimidating. You see, if God cares about any of that, if God cares about all of that, then the followers of Jesus are people who desperately need help. And so here we are listening to his words. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, really, from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. So we're, we're walking through this. And, and quickly you realize, if that's the case, if our, if our actions are always seen, and even our thoughts and our motivations are always seen, then we need help. And we, we are in a good place when we're listening to Jesus because he can give us the help we need. He's teaching, and we've called this series Upside Down because in his teaching, he teaches in such a way that 2,000 years ago and even 2,000 years later today... The world is upside down because of his teaching and because of his authority. So in this section of teaching that Jesus gives, he is giving commands and instruction. There are actually like six blocks of these. And so I just want to walk through the first one of those blocks. And and Mary read it a moment ago. But before we walk through that block of teaching, that section of teaching, I, I want us to ask once again, and we've done this several weeks in a row, but let's do it again. Let's, let's ask ourselves this question. Who is giving the commands and the instructions here? 
who is giving the commands and the instructions here. And at risk of belaboring a point that I've hit again and again, I just want to remind us again that this is God the Son speaking to us this morning in his word. Who is giving the commands? Who is giving the instructions? Jesus is. And, And let's look at specifically how he talks about that in this passage because what Jesus says, and as it was read a moment ago, you heard Jesus say, you have heard it said of old that you shall not murder. Well, actually, Pastor Evan read the original place where it was said of old that you shall not murder. And what Jesus is quoting is the Ten Commands. And who gave the Ten Commands? They were given to Moses, but who gave them? God gave them. And so Jesus says, you have heard it said of old. In other words, God gave in old times this command, you shall not murder. Then Jesus says, and I say to you, we, we, I, I don't know that we fully appreciate what probably every person in that audience would have been thinking that day, but, but we would have been thinking if we were in the audience that day, trained in all the instruction of the Old Testament, we would have thought, the nerve. That takes real nerve to say, God says this to Moses in the Torah and the instruction of God, and I say to you, we would have asked questions. I mean, the Torah, the, the law that was given to God's people, it had always been like the authority. And now Jesus is saying, and there's another authority that's higher than that. And it resides in a person. Jesus is saying, I'm Lord over even the Torah, over the law, over the instruction, the person talking right in front of you, Jesus says. The person in flesh and blood. I say to you, the person who grew up in Nazareth, I say to you, the person who had been baptized by John, I say to you, the person who had ordered followers to come, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, I say to you. I read this week, someone said, that word, that little word, I, may be the most important word in the whole sermon because Jesus is telling us his authority. He quotes no other authorities. He gives no other justifications. He gives no other reasons. He gives no other argumentation. He just says it. I say to you, I don't recommend writing an academic paper, citing yourself as the authority, and it's true just because I said it. I don't need to give any footnotes. I'm the the point of reference here. I don't recommend anybody in the science field conducting research and just saying, here's how the research goes. I say it's this way, and that means it's that way. None of us can do that. That is what Jesus is doing. I say to you. Jesus makes commands. We may not, we may not like being told what to do. That rarely goes kind of with the grain of our lives. That generally rubs us the wrong way. But if we dismiss Jesus' authority to give those commands, we are playing with fire. Who gives the commands? Jesus gives the commands. As we listen closely to what he's instructing, what he's commanding, here's here's another question, and that is, what exactly is the sin that Jesus is identifying? What is the sin that Jesus is identifying? So this is not like shotgun, where he just hits a lot of different things. 
This is actually pretty targeted. This is a pretty laser shot. And the command that Jesus gives first is, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And there's judgment on those who murder. Jesus says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, that is the sin that Jesus is identifying specifically. Anger with your brother or sister. So, so let's, let's realize that he's talking here about a specific kind of anger. So there is anger when you hit your finger with the hammer. There is anger when you get a flat tire. There is anger when you hit a bad golf shot and you hit another bad golf shot and you hit another bad golf shot. There is anger attached to all those things. Sure, that is not. That's not. Did, did you read the words of Jesus? That's not what he's referring to. Whoever is angry with your brother, it's relational anger. It's anger directed at someone, anger that has come because of someone. I think he's even talking about more than just a, a quick flash of anger. The way the, the original reads, it, it almost gives the idea that this isn't just the flash of anger, although certainly lots of damage can be done with a, a moment of rage, so no one's excusing that. It almost seems like this is anger that's portable. Like it's like packed up, ready to go. And at any moment, it's not just something you feel, it's a decision you make, that you're going to carry this anger. It, it, another word kind of in the family might be resentment. You're going to carry this anger at someone, and it's always going to be ready to go at a moment's notice. You're carrying it around. You're nursing a grudge. Jesus adds another, a, a couple of other dimensions, descriptions of this anger. So as we're reading there in verse 22, it starts off with everyone who is angry. Then he says, whoever insults his brother. Some translations will say, whoever says raka. It was a, uh, essentially a, a, a cut down, a, a word of derision, derision that you would just say. And so translators have helped us, whoever insults their brother. And then the second, second part says, whoever says, you fool. So what does it mean to insult? So this really is getting at, like, someone's mental competence. So, so please hear what Jesus is saying, that if you're angry, you, you're nursing this resentment, and in the moment, you, you just say, you're an idiot. I mean, I think that may be a more helpful translation for us, just the process, exactly what Jesus is saying, so that there's no room to kind of wiggle out of this. It's like, you don't have the mental competence. I don't have to honor you. I don't have to honor you. I don't have to respect you, because you are showing that you have no mental capacity. I'm far above yours. I don't have to pay attention to you. You're saying that because of your apparent lower Mental capacity, you're just an idiot. I don't have to pay attention to you. Whoever says that, whoever insults his brother, whoever says you fool, and, and this probably is not identifying so much the mental capacity as the moral capacity. I don't know. Again, an equivalent for this, one person suggested maybe the equivalent today would be if you, if you, if you look at someone and you think you're just such, you're a jerk. Because only someone who is just that low of a person would do such a thing. And I don't have to love you. Like I'm told to love my neighbor, I don't have to love you. I, I don't have to honor you. I don't have to respect you. Pretty much I'm justified in treating you as a worthless piece of trash. 
Because you, you are that. You hear what Jesus is saying? I think Jesus has given us a picture of simmering anger that leads to resentment and just kind of flippant dismissal of someone that's just an idiot or, or that verbal contempt of someone who you consider less than you in a moral capacity. And we begin to feel the press. I, I, am, I am well aware that this is a serious message of Jesus. I don't think this was a time of like lots, lots of laughing as Jesus brings this particular round of his teaching to bear. I think we're feeling it, and we're feeling it probably enough to go, well, wait a minute, are there there some exceptions? I mean, wouldn't you know, I mean, if I were raising my hand in protest, I might say, well, Jesus, some anger seems to be a little bit involuntary. I didn't didn't mean to do it. I didn't ask for it. I I, I just felt it. And, And can't you just like you have a thought, and it could lead down to the road to lust, but you, it doesn't have to, or you have a desire for something that could lead down the path of greed or, greed or covetousness or envy, but it doesn't have to. Couldn't there be a type of anger that you feel it, but, but it doesn't go down the road of being angry with someone? So maybe, maybe we could grant that there is that category and say, okay, so if we, if we grant that, let's, let's still keep our eye on what Jesus is saying. Or you say, well, wait, wait a minute, isn't there such a thing as righteous anger? Wasn't Jesus even angry in a righteous way, and we would have to say, absolutely. He gives, he gives us examples of righteous anger that is acted upon in righteous ways. I would just have to say, I think there are occasions for that. I just think I do that very, very poorly. It was hard for me to say, I'm just like Jesus there. Whenever I get mad, it's always for the right reasons. I always handle myself in the right way. I would not give myself an A on that. So, but if we want to grant, okay, there is that place for righteous anger, Let's still just keep our eye on this. For the sake of argument, let's just make sure we understand that Jesus is not talking about that. So are we we prepared to say, you know, Jesus talked to those people 2,000 years ago about anger, but somewhere, I don't know, maybe it was around 400 AD, anger became less of a problem for people. So actually, he doesn't have much to say to us today because anger used to be a problem. But now today... Nobody gets angry at anybody anymore, especially not at church, especially not Christians. So can we move on, or or are we kidding ourselves? I was just thinking this week, and maybe my radar was up a little bit higher, but I I was listening, I, I like to listen to podcasts. I listened to two this week specifically directed at anger toward individuals. And then I opened an article yesterday online, and it's an article about rage. And I, I sit and, and listen to someone share how God has worked in their life on Wednesday night, and I hear a testimony of someone that dealt with much anger in our life. Yeah, th- this didn't go away. It hasn't gone away. So, so lest we think there is no issue here, no issue at Ogletown, no issue this morning, no, no, no. This week, this week, a parent found themselves very, very angry with their child. Probably a parent at Ogletown. Maybe a parent discovered they did not even have that capacity. They, they, they never would have guessed they had that capacity for anger. But in a moment, it was there, and it was directed toward a child. Or is it just remotely possible that there are, are students here that you find your siblings and you find your parents and you find your teachers more and more irritating, more and more frustrating? 
aren't, aren't high schools and middle schools and elementary schools and colleges and grad schools and post-grad schools, aren't they filled? Are they not filled with people who are just angry? Angry with someone else? Is anger an issue here? Might there be someone who is stuck with a roommate that doesn't just frustrate you a little? But now it's well over that. I mean, you are, you find yourself regularly angry and resentful. Could it be that there are those that are getting older and life, and by, by life I mean your, your family, your, your body, your job, your interests, your wishes, all that's not really going the way you want it to go. And you are just lashing out at people, pouring it out on people. Could it be that you, you are reminded of something in the past that somewhere, somehow, someone did you wrong and it is just right there? Could it be that it was something that happened this past week that, that just flushed out all this anger in you towards someone else? Could it be that you find deeper and deeper levels of resentment toward a coworker or toward the boss or toward the employee that you have to work with? You see, most of this is just not going to show up a lot. I, yeah, sure, there are people that yell at each other in church parking lots. I mean, that happens. I've not seen that a lot in my life. I've gone to church a lot. I've seen it. I've just not seen it a lot. So this is one of those, like, subversive sins that just kind of flies low. So someone could be a very angry person. Could it be, could it be that there is a spouse that has grown very, very angry? A man very angry at his wife. And says things that, yeah, you never say here. But it's happening. Could it be that a wife is just becoming more and more angry with her husband? Maybe this anger is abusive and violent. Grieves my heart is the very strong likelihood that 25, 30 years down the road, someone might say, my dad was a very angry man. My mom was just an angry person. And it impacted all of my life. Maybe it's low grade now. Maybe the words don't even come out. But right, right below the word level are these thoughts. Maybe you've just decided that you live around, you just live around everybody that is in your life is either an idiot or a complete jerk. Everybody. Everybody. And you treat them that way. And you have such, a, such resentment toward everybody in your life, even the people that love you, even the people that sacrifice for you. But, but you're just at a moment, a moment away from just going off on everybody in a fit of anger. Maybe your social media would tell the story. Maybe your last 100 comments or posts on Facebook would tell the story. It would not lie. Maybe your last hundred texts would tell just the resentment you carry toward others. Maybe the, your, your Snapchat stories or posts or messages would communicate the truth about how you really, really feel, how you really feel about the people around you, how you really feel about the world that God has put you to live in. Something happens, and then you assess, and you judge, and you judge yourself as morally superior, and they're, they're incompetent, and the last thing you have is any sort of regard for God's love for them as a human being. They're subhuman to you. And you justify it. And Jesus says, whoever, 
whoever. Maybe you say, well, Curtis, what they're, what they're doing is sinful and causes grief. And yet in that moment of anger, is it like you're really, really angry at the sin? Or are you just mad because of what it means for your life? How many people? It's a terrible thought, but how many people are getting some sort of counseling or treatment today because of abusive words that we might have said in a fit of anger? How many years is this going to go on? How many people heard repeatedly that they were stupid and believed it? How many people heard that they were just not totally worthless and believe it? Believe it still to this day. So we might just go, well, you know, everybody just needs to be, you know, kind of toughen up. This is totally normal. And I would have to say, if we want to call that normal, we just have to live in the world of Jeremiah 17 that says the heart is desperately wicked. It's sick if we think that's normal, if we think that's okay to just take others down and use our words to do that. And Jesus would remind us that these are not just, just even any, this isn't just anybody. These are your brothers and sisters, whoever insults them. These are people that God has brought into our family through, through grace. These are people that we have watched baptize into the family of God. They are our brothers and our sisters. So we go back to what Jesus says, and he says, don't murder. He's not going to take anything away from that. Right? That, that, that remains. Don't murder. But he's going to fill that command to its fullest extent. He, came, he comes to fulfill the law. And he says it's not just about protecting physical life. It shows us that the intent always, when he said, you, you shall not murder in the Old Testament, God's intent always was to express his displeasure for our contempt for other people. He's never okay with that. God's intention was never just about protecting life. It's protecting people, especially the vulnerable. And so we're meant to ask, is he or she diminished by the way I speak about them, the way I treat them? the way I think about them. When you see it in this way, you begin to ask a new set of questions. And one of those questions is, how serious is all this? And you feel it. And I, I, I understand this is like not an easy word from the Lord. This is a hard word. So how serious is all of this? And of course, you're going to expect me to say really serious because it is. And there, there are reasons why it's really serious. One of the ways I know it's serious to the Lord is the images he uses so when he's describing whoever is angry, he says, be careful because you're on a path toward judgment. And the picture is almost like a courtroom scene, like a local court. But when that gavel falls, the verdict is like, it's done. There's a finality about it. And he says, whoever insults, just know you are headed toward a date with like the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court, where there, is, there really is no appeal. This is where you're heading. These are serious images, and if we didn't get those first two, the last image, he says, is whoever, whoever says you fool is actually headed toward a hell of fire. The word there is Gehenna, and Gehenna was known in Jerusalem as the city dump, where, where everything was just burned, and nothing ever came back from there. So this, this is serious, what Jesus is talking about. So while we may want to say, Jesus... So I call someone an idiot. So I think that I'm better than someone else. No big deal. And Jesus is telling us, big deal. This really matters. 
He speaks of last judgment. He assures us that hell is a reality. Hell is more than just a, a word to express yourself in a fit of profanity or swearing. You've heard Jesus, in these words, become a hellfire preacher. He's used the words. Could Jesus be angry? Does God have wrath? That, that's the distinct impression you get. I love how two people wrote about this. One's from more modern times. It says this, the holiness of God, and hear this, hear the whole quote here. The holiness of God is at war with all bitterness, hatred, and hurting. God's wrath is God's war against everything harmful without a reason. God's love would not be love if it did not work to remove all that ungraciously hurts. So this is like the picture of God's wrath, going after those things that destroy creation. And an ancient preacher said this, God has threatened hell not in order to cast us in it, but that he might persuade us to flee from it. Jesus talks about hell, talks about judgment. So we know it's serious. And we also know it's serious because Jesus tells us what we should do, and that is not insult and not... But then he gives instruction about what to do when we've blown it, what to do when there actually is relational tension and relational strife. I think of all the different ways Jesus could have said, so right after saying, whoever insults, whoever says you fool. So he could have gone in in different ways. He could have said, you know what, you need to be nicer people. You need to think positive thoughts. Maybe try a few breathing techniques that will let you control your anger. But where Jesus goes is actually a a kind of unconventional route. He assumes we, we will mess up. And that's why he says in verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you. So Jesus wasn't this naive optimist. He realized that even in a church, we would, we would have friction with each other. And we would remember, perhaps in a worship service like this, oh yeah, something's not right with me and so-and-so. And he said, when you remember that, that's going to happen. You're not going to live without some sort of relational tension. You're going to live having used your words in a harmful way, and someone's going to feel that. So here's what you do when you mess up. Jesus told us, you just leave your gift before the altar and you go and get reconciled and then you come back and worship. Or even verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser. So he assumes we're not going to live without any sort of problems. Jesus shows us the seriousness of what he's saying by saying, here's what you do when there's a problem and there will be. Here's a practical step of obedience. Here's how to honor my command retroactively. When you messed it up or when someone else's sin impacted you. We'll get on the wrong side of things. We will maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally. Jesus would tell us, seek reconciliation and do it quickly. Romans 12, 18 says this, and I think this is an important verse for us to remember. Maybe just one, if you've never become familiar with it, this was a good one to remember. If possible, so far as it depends on you, because sometimes it's beyond your control, live peaceably with everybody, as much as it depends on you. That's a good word from Paul. If someone has anything at all against you, they hold something against us, maybe you're not even to believe, 
blame. You can't even say, well, I don't have a problem with anybody, so it doesn't matter. Jesus says, no, no, if, they have, if you know they have a problem with you, work to clear that out. Make this a priority. Most Sundays at Ogletown, the, the, the first Sunday of each month is generally the, a Sunday where we observe the Lord's Supper, we observe communion. And maybe it's just a regular rhythm, a good rhythm for you to be in. That before you come to church and receive what the Lord's done for you, you just take a mental inventory, a heart inventory. Is something wrong? Do I need to make something right? The week before, do I need to talk as much as it lies in me? Do I, do I need to approach somebody? Is everything okay here? Because if we don't deal with it, it spreads and the scope of people grows. And when it's, things get more severe, and, and even I found, I get more mad and more stubborn the longer time goes on. And I have less of a desire to fix anything. Chapter 5 sits heavy on us, Matthew 5. It's, it's not just because Jesus was not in a great mood that day and gave some really hard things. Jesus is walking us through. He's speaking the truth, and he always spoke the truth in love. So my question on this hard word of Jesus saying, here's, what, here's the path of anger. My question is, is there any good news? Is there any good news for us today? Because all of what we've heard so far is, is pretty tough. And I feel like I've, I've been beat up by this text this week. Because I see all the ways in which my reflexes are not, not that spiritual, not that right. Is there any good news? There is good news. There's good news first because God sent Jesus and Jesus loves us enough to warn us. It is good news that Jesus is just telling us the truth and warning us. A doctor who hides a severe cancer diagnosis from someone who needs to hear it, that's not a good doctor. And Jesus would not be, Jesus would not be good if he didn't tell us that this road leads to hell. And this is what I'm burdened about today because I wonder if today might be one of those warning days for you. You're an angry person and everybody around you knows it. And you've worked to excuse it, and you've made justifications. But, but in this moment, there's just this window where the Lord's speaking to you, and you're hearing it. You're not just hearing the words of Curtis, because you could take or leave the words of Curtis. But you're hearing the words of Jesus, and he's giving you a warning. And today might be one of the last warnings you get. You're on a path to hell and destruction, and today might be the day. This is good news that the Lord said, wait a minute. Don't go down this path any further. Does one more year need to go by with people all around you living with an angry person? Does that need to go on any longer? Or might today be the day where you heed the Lord's warning? You need to hang around this church one more month pretending to be this great spiritual person, but in your home just tearing everybody down or going to work tearing everybody down. Does that need to happen? The Lord might have given you a warning. And yeah, you can't change consequences of what you've already done, but you can this morning humble yourself before the Lord. You can humble yourself before others. You can confess your sin to God. You can confess your sin to each other. I can go to someone and say, this is who I am. And I can ask them for help and ask them for prayers. And I can work to change and I can rely on God's mercies. And I promise you, what I know about the mercies of God is they are new this morning. They're new this morning for angry people. God's grace is, is that real to us. And you, we want to excuse, and Jesus says, you can't excuse it. And we want to be complacent, and Jesus jars us out of that. Jesus loves us enough to warn us. 
And Jesus loves us enough to die for these kinds of sins. Jesus never sinned and loves us enough to die for these kinds of sins. Do you find it amazing? Do you find it amazing that Jesus is giving these words and he's giving it to sinners like us? I just find it pretty remarkable that Jesus could tell these words about not being angry and he could speak of words like judgment and he could talk about the Sanhedrin, the court, and he could talk even about being taken outside the city like Gehenna and the the, the fire, the place of fire there. And Jesus would have known that probably in, in months from that point in time, he would be the one. He would be the one who would experience judgment, who would experience judgment at the hands of the Sanhedrin, who would be taken outside the city and kind of left for every, just kind of the, the waste of Jerusalem. He would be the one. So this is the one who is pouring out his love and his life, telling them, you're headed toward hell, and he's the one who took that judgment upon himself. This is amazing love. That those of us that would wreck people with our words, he would look at us in love and compassion. And he would say, you don't have to continue. You don't have to walk down that road. And he would take that judgment upon himself. Jesus didn't deserve any of judgment, any judgment, but he took it for us. He experienced it for us. The judgment he tasted was for our sins to make right our wrongs. Not just the hypothetical sins that, you know, the bad people do, but sins like chewing somebody out, making the lives of those around us awful because we verbally assault them in a fit of anger. Those are the kinds of sins, the sins that we do, that Jesus came in love for. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the poor in spirit are blessed. And by that, he meant those who feel their spiritual poverty. And this week has been a week where, in this area, I've had to come to grips with my own spiritual poverty. And it's been a week of just, uh, let's stop running. I'm much angrier than I, I think I should be. I get much, I'm, I'm more easily irritated than I ever should be. And I start to name it as Jesus names it and realize this is what Christ was hung on a cross for. This this. And in that moment where we feel our spiritual poverty, we come to Jesus. We run to the cross, as Larry encouraged us to do. And at that cross, what we say is, Jesus, your perfect life and your sacrificial death stands for me. It's not my goodness. It's your righteousness. And it stands for me. And that's where my confidence and hope is in what you've done for me. And that's what I'm holding on to. I'm standing with you and what you've done. And I'm united to you in your death. We run to the cross. Where's their good news? There's good news in that. And there's one more piece of good news because I can't leave this command without reminding us as a church that Jesus not only loves, enough, loves us enough to die for us, but Jesus loves us enough to change us, change us, to change us so that we're not what we were. What kind of cheap grace would it be to, to leave us unchanged, still damaging others? And God just saying, no, no problem with it. You just keep wreaking havoc in your life. I mean, how, how cheap would that grace be? But this is costly grace that actually changes us, works us. So maybe something we thought was never possible 
We always thought we would be this angry person, and God begins to change. And maybe, maybe it's dramatic, and maybe it's just incremental, but it's change. And it's change that comes not because of you, but because of God's work in you. This is grace. The last place we should be is to think, well, Jesus died for me. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how angry. Because Jesus died for me. It doesn't matter whether I hold people in contempt. The question I would have is, is Jesus giving us commands or is he not? Is he telling us what to do or is he not? Did he really assume his disciples would, yeah, you don't need to worry about that. Or did he actually want his disciples to follow his path? Jesus came to make sinners an entirely new creation. Praise God. Praise God that the old can pass away and everything can become new. So do you need help today? Do you need help today? Then run to Jesus. That's not my cliche. That's just my only hope and answer. Run to him. And by running to him, inevitably, what that's going to mean is you're going to run to others who are with Jesus, and you're going to say, help me, help me. You're going to run to your brothers and sisters in Christ who also want to see you grow in the Lord. You're going to say, help me. I'm not okay. Jesus is found there. Experience that grace because we're here with Jesus and we need him. We need him. We need his words and his help and his righteousness and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his power. We need his Holy Spirit to change us. Not just clean up a few things outside, but to change us into all that God wants us to be. Let's run, church. Let's run to Jesus who can help us obey the very commands he gave that day. Can I ask you to bow your head? If you feel overwhelmed, I'm going to encourage you to run to our Lord, who is strong to save. In a moment, we'll sing a simple prayer. The prayer says, give me Jesus. Father, I ask for those that may feel hopeless today and really helpless in this situation that they would, for the first day, maybe find a glimmer of hope and they would reach out for help. Lord, give us grace to name our sin as you name it and give us grace to accept your forgiveness and then give us grace to receive your spirit to make a new start. Pour out your mercy on us this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.